we may restructure that project where they're only putting in 800 grand to a $10 million project. And all of a sudden their capital now stretches further, that they can take on more, they can slot them in in a timely manner so that they're managing their risk and exposure to the market um, and that, that's letting them grow. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hi and welcome to the Property Developer Podcast, a show dedicated to helping property developers take their business to the next level. And boy, have I got a show for you today that will help you do just that. I have a terrific conversation with Dan Holden, whose finance business got voted Australia's number one commercial finance broker last year. The discussion is chock full of tips, ideas and inspiration. Before we get to that, a quick update on our townhouse project. The builder is making good progress. The stud wall frames for the upper levels of the rear townhouses are going in and the first level block work is almost done on the front row of terraces. We've had some shocking weather lately which has slowed things down a little and the site is pretty muddy. And last week I paid our council open space contribution and boy did that hurt handing over that cheque. I've been spending quite a bit of time lately doing project administration, so sorting out all the inclusions and extras that have been requested by the purchasers. So making sure everyone gets the right number and size of split systems, colour schedules, alarms, fans, etc. It's a bit of a moving feast, so I need to stay on top of it. I think for future projects, this is something I would look to delegate or outsource. Otherwise, the project ticks along nicely. Now on to today's guest, the founder of Australia's number one commercial finance broker, Dan Holden from Holden Capital. I really enjoyed this chat with Dan. We cover some really interesting content related to project finance, and I think you'll find it really helpful for reflecting on where you're at now and where you want to get to, and how you can map that journey out a bit more. We talk about some sophisticated funding solutions that are available to help you stretch your money further, six ways property developers can manage their cash flow, and the importance of understanding your business model. Get your pen and paper ready because you'll want to be taking notes during this conversation. I started off by asking Dan what food he would eat until he was sick. I'm probably going to go with uh, an old favourite, something I have basically every day, which is Vegemite on toast. <laughs> I had another guy say Vegemite on toast. Yeah, it's just part of my, uh, I guess, daily um, daily thing. Probably shouldn't be, but um, I uh, don't mind a bit of Vegemite on toast and, um, and a coffee. So, yeah, I'd say that's um, my weakness. And are you a thick Vegemite spreader or just definitely. a few specks? Oh, no, medium, but thick toast, yeah. From edge to edge? Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, uh, there's something special about hot butter on toast with Vegemite yeah, yeah. over the top. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you're not feeling the best, it can help put you back together. Yeah, perfect in winter, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, well, we're here today to talk about funding for developers, which is obviously yep. a fairly central and critical part of any developer's business. Yep. And we're going to go through some tips and suggestions that you've got for how developers can maximise their lending or maximise their opportunities for obtaining finance. Yep. But do you want to give us a bit of a background on yourself and, and how you got to be Australia's number one commercial broker? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so the business has been going for five years now. Um, we started in the gloomy post-GFC market. Uh, and this year we'll settle over 500 million of construction debt. Um, so we're specialist commercial property developer and investor-based um, financiers. Um, we don't do home loans or boat loans. Um, we only do loans for construction projects uh, to uh, sophisticated property developers. Um, the business was built uh, off repeat and referral business. Um, and May last year, so a year ago, uh, we started to actually advertise the business to the wider industry. Um, as you mentioned, yep, we were awarded number one in Queensland last year and number one in Australia last year. Um, and just earlier this week, uh, we were announced as finalist for the 2016 National Awards, uh, which is nice. Uh, and we're also last year BRW Top 100 Company for growth um, and we're currently finalising plans to open an office in both Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, currently, uh, we've got 11 people in our team um, and interestingly, each person in the team um, I actually knew before hiring them. Uh, so very proud to say that we've got a good bunch of people um, who have fun in what they're doing. 
Uh, as far as my personal journey, uh, prior to starting the business, um, I spent five years with a company called Ashmore & Winthrop. So they were the largest in Australia in this space. Uh, they settled over $4 billion a year in finance, commercial property finance. Uh, and they had a balance sheet of about $300 million, um, which we invested into projects as mezzanine debt, preferred equity, joint venture structures. Um, so that was uh, very good and interesting times, particularly through the GFC. Um, and prior to that, I spent five years as a development manager. Uh, so I covered the whole life cycle of a project um, from acquisition through construction um, and sales management on completion. Okay, so you're uh, well qualified to be sitting there talking about funding. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's, and uh, I think it's, you know, finance is, um, uh, I guess, an integral part of getting a project up and running. And that's what I found as a development manager. You know, you spend all this time and effort getting, looking at the hundred to get the one that's the, the cracking project and, and spending all this, um, you know, time on DD and, and money and effort and energy. And uh, then you've actually got to, um, you know, find the capital to, to get it built. So that's what, um, I guess, made me excited to get involved in finance 10 years ago and, and it still excites me today. Very good. So you mentioned that you do loans or that you work with sophisticated developers. So how would you define a sophisticated developer? Um, I guess someone who, you know, makes, has a career in developing property and makes their living out of developing property, um, which is, I guess, fairly loose as a category. But, um, you know, it, it's somebody who's, you know, very dependent on getting that outcome and getting, you know, very committed to... Um, uh, seeing it succeed and and putting you know a lot of uh, effort and energy into making sure that that's a successful uh, project, um, which I'm sure most people would. But I guess there's some people who do it as a hobby, and um, you know they're probably less targeted in our mind. Um, we, you know, we're more so dealing. I guess uh, one qualification may be that they might have staff that are working with them, and therefore they're um, you know really seeing it as a business that they. They operate. So um, we do have some, I guess, developers who are, um, you know, doing it on the side, but they would be doing repeat uh, projects that, that we would see, yep, we can help them grow their business. So it's if they actually operate a business in property development. And how have you seen things change since that time post-GFC to something of a construction boom, I guess, which is... Is it, ta- is it beginning to taper off or what have you seen? What changes have you seen over that time? Yeah, so I guess post-GFC, it was uh, very much sponsor-driven. Um, you know, uh, as, as I guess a, a little insight into banks versus non-banks, banks lend to people and then focus on what project they're doing afterwards. Non-banks will lend to the project in terms of their fir- first port of call to how they will assess it. So post-GFC, um, the banks were the dominant kind of source of capital for property developers. Pre-GFC, we had uh, like 80 to 100 non-bank providers of capital. Um, unfortunately, most of them had to shut their doors in the G- GFC because they got called, their money got called in. So it, you know, post-GFC, I'd pick a number out of the air, maybe 95% of projects were funded by the major banks. And so it meant that they were... Um, you know, given plenty of choices, if they only had to, you know, write 10 deals for the year that they were given, they had 30 or 40 or 50 to choose from, they could be picky. Um, and so it was a flight to quality to get um, get their attention and get the deal done. Uh, then I guess probably, you know, about two, two and a half years ago, we started to see um, the property market and metrics were aligning better and therefore projects were stacking. Um, you know, a little bit of increase in GR meant that um, projects were um, uh, feasible and also uh, an increased volume of, of off-the-plan sales meant that more projects were getting up. Probably got a little bit carried away in 15 um, in terms of the volume of, of projects, um, uh, particularly, in, I guess, in Brisbane and Sydney and, and a little bit in Melbourne. Uh, and so now we're definitely seeing a, a slowdown of that, um, which I think is a, is a good thing. So, Dan, I came across you when I read uh, an online story that you'd done around cash flow tips for developers, which I thought was really smart and really useful. 
So I thought we might run through some of those for developers out there who may not um, be fully, fully across how they can manage their cash flow. Yep, sure. So um, I, I think it's a major risk component for property developers is cash availability um, and cash flow uh, to, to pay uh, bills as they're due um, and to keep their business moving and growing. Um, because of the nature of property development, you, you buy a piece of land uh, and improve its value over a period of time, uh, which generally requires considerable capital. And typically, it can be invested or tied up for 9 to 18 months, um, which means it's a long time between drinks uh, and um, some ideas that we've got to help ease this time gap uh, are things like um, including a monthly project management fee uh, within your funding. Um, some do this, but often it gets overlooked or removed if things get tight. Um, other ideas are reducing your capital by using other people's money. Uh, so most developers think of mezzanine debt as a way of covering um, a last-minute shortfall before they start a project but not as a way of actually withdrawing or releasing profits from a project that's actually underway. So let's say there was a project you're doing that was 10 mil total development cost. Let's say the bank lends you 7.5 mil, means you've got 2.5 mil cash tied up in that project, which you won't get back until it's complete and, and or, or, you know, the bank's repaid and then you get everything that's left. Um, so what a... I guess an equity redraw facility would look like is that out of that two and a half mil that you've got in, in that project and, and can't touch until it's finished and settled, uh, a lender like us um, might come in and provide, say, one and a half uh, or two million dollars uh, against that project um, at any point during construction. But I guess you know, the, the further the project is progressed, the more it is de risked, and therefore the lower risk return we need to achieve so we can be cheaper the further the project is advanced. Um, and that then allows you to pull that money out of the project and, and spend it on the next project because it's now your money. It's not um, kind of, you know, generally got many caveats to it to say you can't do this, you can't do that. It's then your money to invest how, how you choose. Um, so that's uh, one way is actually recycling, repatriating your capital once the project is actually underway. Uh, another thing to consider is that timing is critical. Um, so the common rule for some elite developers is to have a project under construction, another one in pre-sales phase, pre-construction, um, and another one in planning phase. So that just helps them um, in, in juggling their, their cash and cash flow um, and also to get the best return on their money uh, using all of their own money in planning, pre-sales, uh, phase and then once construction starts, bring in other people's money to the project uh, and that's when you'll get the most effective cost of funds using other people's money. And so just, sorry, just going back down to that uh, previous one around the mezzanine redraw, equity redraw, what mm -hmm. kind of interest rate would people be looking at on that mezzanine finance or the, the interest rate on drawing down on that equity? Yep, so it does vary anywhere from um, we've done them as low as mid-teens as an interest rate, right up to 25 30% per annum depending on the risk of the project, the quantum of, of coin needed, the uh, strength of the sponsor um, and, and the time that they need it. You know, If they need it to help pay their pre-sales costs and we need to get involved that early, well, there's still quite a bit of risk on the table that we need to partake in. So therefore, the cost needs to be adjusted for that. Um, and I guess that's usually would, would be for a fairly short period of time, 12 months maybe, 18 months. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's why when you look at like an equity redraw um, of a project that's underway, you may only be borrowing that money for six or eight months until you've completed and, and then settled, paid the bank back, paid us back and then you know, the actual cost of that capital isn't huge. Yeah, that's right. Good point. So another one to consider would be uh, negotiating good settlement terms when purchasing projects and development sites. So that doesn't mean taking five-year options on 20 properties uh, and hoping that um, you can pick and choose at the end, but uh, it, it does mean preferably not taking 30-day cash contracts to uh, secure a development site. Um, we've seen a few of them in the last kind of two years when the market's been 
pretty overheated, um, and, and hopefully as the market cools a little bit, um, the uh, the cost per box comes down, and, and hopefully the terms start improving. Um, when you think about it in terms of a capital um, and attracting capital, uh, the more de-risked a project is, the lower your cost of external funds. So uh, if you can progress the project, obviously getting a DA is good, getting some pre-sales, uh, anything you can do to progress that project as along as much as you can is going to lower that cost of capital. Another one uh, which I think is very important and, and unfortunately don't see a lot of is having a business model and sticking to it. Um, it's, it's tempting to grow quickly. Um, the, uh, I guess when you look at the metrics from a macro perspective, if you're making, say, 50 to 80 grand profit per product on, say, an average 500, 600 grand in value stock, um, and you grow to doing, say, 70 to 80 product per year across, say, three or four projects, um, let's say that's three and a half, four million a year in profit. Uh, so these are just ballpark macro numbers, right? So to do that, you might need to employ, say, seven to ten staff. So there's, you know, one mil in, in staff costs, say one and a half mil, including office costs and everything else. Uh, and that's fine in a rising market, um, you know, all boats rise in a rising market. But when the market slows uh, and your profit's tied up in the last few product in a particular project, which aren't selling like they used to, um, the tide goes out, you've got these overheads that you've got to pay um, and, you know, you're relying upon that profit to keep things moving. So having a, a business model that you understand the metrics for and, you know, can comfortably sit there going, right, I know my business model, I know I make 60K per product and I'm going to do 80K per product even in a bad year, you know, I'm, I'm creating projects that I know will sell even when there's a little bit of heat out of the market. Um, that's that's critical to having a good sustainable cash flow model. Uh, another one would be uh, having a safety net, which means diversifying your profits from your last project and not rolling all your profits from the last project into the next one. Um, it's something that is very tempting to do because it worked last time, so it's definitely going to work again. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, things do go wrong. Um, so there's, there's many cases of developers doing a six-pack, then a 12-pack, then 30 units, then 50 units, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they've barely blinked and they're doing a 200-unit tower and they've still got their first dollar uh, of their net worth tied up in, in that kind of model and, and, uh, and business. So uh, definitely pulling out some money for a rainy day is, is suggested. Do you have any suggestions for a percentage that you would do that you would pull out? No, I've, I've seen some, I guess, you know, elite developers who have been successful in doing that um, and for them it, it probably wasn't a percentage as in like a wealth buckets kind of I'm going to pull this out of each project. It was probably more about creating some passive income for them that meant that they could, um, you know, sit on a beach so to speak and, and pay the bills every year without having to necessarily do a project just for the sake of it. Um, so I think that's probably more the goal. Uh, rather than per project. Yeah, maybe one day we can uh, all get to the point like Apple and have one and a half billion in cash just uh, sitting in reserve. Yeah, exactly. Um, so another one uh, worth considering is is using external consultants rather than um, staff. Uh, and obviously it's um, a nice ego thing to say that you, you're a property developer with 10 or 50 staff, um, but a lot of elite developers that I know work with consultants and they bring them on per project at a cost per project, you know, motivate them with milestone payments and uh, that lowers their cost base. Um, and it also means that, you know, in a slower market, they don't have to do uh, 80 product per year making 60k a box to, just to keep the lights on. So um, I think things like that will help a developer uh, ride out the ups and downs of the cycle. And which consultants would people consider bringing in? Like, I mean, I use external consultants for pretty much everything, but what ones would you bring in to have in-house? Uh, so some of the developers, as they grow, bring in, um, you know, a lot of consultants. Um, uh, uh, I know some who have brought in in-house uh, architects, some that have brought in town planners, uh, as as they get bigger, I know some that have brought in 
um, finance consultants like us to arrange their uh, all of their construction funding. Um, uh, you know, sales agents, leasing agents. Uh, it just, I guess, as you grow, you kind of look at it going, well, um, you know, I want um, control of this, but it's also a, a risk when things do slow that you've still got to pay their wages and keep it going. So back to the topic, which was how do they manage their cash flow and tips for managing it, um, is, you know, just being uh, aware of what the overheads are, what, what is your business model, um, what is sustainable for you to keep paying even when the income stops. Um, you know, it's a long time between drinks and you've got to manage that. Yeah. All right. No, they're, they're great. I've just got a couple of questions about some of them. So you mentioned about including a monthly management fee. Is there a percentage that would be reasonable that you could charge for that? Sort of, is it 1% or half a percent? It does vary. Uh, developers obviously try and make it as large as possible and, and uh, good on for trying. The way we generally view it is up to 2% we would see as normal. Sometimes we see 25 um, If they're engaging an external consultant to manage it, maybe it's in a joint venture structure or they don't have the in-house uh, capability, uh, we would then kind of look at that contract and if they say, yep, they're charging 1% and the developer's charging half a percent on top of that, we would go, yes, that's fine. But if it was a, a one-man band who was operating, you know, two 20-unit projects and he was charging 25 grand a month per project in development management fees, we would be, you know, that would be a bit of a red flag. We'd be saying, well, hang on a sec, mate, you're pulling out 50 grand a month uh, here as a, as a business before anything's actually been completed um, and, and anything's actually been successful. So it's just, I guess, comparing it to, you know, their actual uh, outgoings of delivering that development management, project management, um, and the size and scale of the project and their business. Okay. And then with um, scheduling projects efficiently, I mean, that's a point that I'd really like to get to. What? How do you see these elite developers or really good developers get to that point where they've got the various stages of projects underway? So I guess it's looking at uh, your pipeline and your business model and saying, what do I have on at the moment? What what capital do I have spare, um, if any? And, you know, when is my capital coming off the the conveyor belt, so to speak, out of the, the end of the machine and, and when will I have that available to reinvest into the next project? So, you know, if you've got a project that's settling and completing, say, in October, that means by Christmas you're probably going to have the profit and your capital back out of that project. So getting something ready now uh, in terms of planning and acquisition so that it's um, ready to inject capital into early 2017 next year uh, is probably a good, you know, planning ahead and thinking about that. Um, and then at that time, you might go, well, I actually want to do two projects and diversify, um, and I want to pull, you know, a third of the profit out and and put it under my mattress. So therefore, I need two smaller projects rather than doubling down and and going for one larger project. So it it'll be planning out when your money is expected back getting a project ready so that uh, when that money is available, you can invest it into that uh, next project in a comfortable, timely fashion. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way and <laughs> we do sometimes get people saying, look, I've got this great project and it's three weeks away from titles, therefore, you know, two or three months away from me having my capital, but I've got to actually settle this next purchase now and um, that's obviously unfortunate, but there's still solutions there. But uh, in terms of your question, it's it's just planning your, your capital cycle uh, and planning your projects to match that cycle. Okay. So, and is that something that you help out with or is that just something that you learn over time? Probably something learned over time. Um, I mean, it's something that with our, you know, kind of very, very good repeat clients, we do kind of mapping and planning sessions with, um, but it's not something we kind of advertise as a service as such. Um, and, and it's something that you see elite developers doing with their their board or their, you know, advising consulting groups. Um, and yeah, definitely we've been involved in some of those sessions. So, Dan, for developers that are looking to take their business to the next level, how much understanding about finance should they have? What do they need to get their heads around? So I think funding uh, your project as a developer is a massive risk item uh, and the more developers uh, understand that, 
uh, the better. In terms of um, kind of expanding that knowledge, uh, we recently published a, a dictionary which is available on our website and, and talks through uh, the basic terms and the advanced terms and jargon. Um, and we did that mainly to help people not be afraid of certain terms uh, and understand kind of challenges that may arise through the process of procuring finance. Um, the reason I love project finance is because I spent five years as a development manager doing acquisitions uh, and, and spent a lot of time and effort to get a project to the point where it was, um, you know, made sense and stacked up and, and we acquired the property and, you know, tick, 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 you feel like you're, uh, you're elated because you've got a project and you've, you've got a live one and then you've got to figure out how you actually fund it. Um, the developer I worked for uh, was, was a very successful private guy, uh, but his motto was think big and multiply, um, which I think is the same for a few developers. So we're always taking on more projects than we had physical cash for. Uh, and so it meant you know, being creative and, and coming up with you know, new structures, and, uh, and that was definitely a good learning experience. Uh, so when I was a approached to uh, come into the finance sector uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I knew it was the place for me because it was often a bottleneck in actually getting a project out of the ground. So as far as a developer growing the knowledge, I think it's critical uh, and some of the smarter elite developers that we work with are regularly applying their finance knowledge um, or borrow some of mine to help them structure deals creatively, uh, both in how they're buying sites negotiating with builders uh, and so on, which can have massive advantages uh, and help them grow their business uh, sustainably and comfortably. So you don't necessarily have to undertake the process yourself um, or be the best in the country at it like we are, but at least understanding how it works and how it impacts your business model um, as it's a very important factor, I think, in uh, getting your, your projects going and, and getting your business uh, working sustainably. Yeah, well, I was reading through the dictionary just yesterday and I thought it was really awesome. I actually passed it on to a couple of my developer colleagues to have a look at. So, yeah, it's well worth uh, getting onto your website and having a look at that as well as the many other useful resources that you've got on your Holden Capital website. Cool. So what you're saying is that developers should have an understanding around things like joint ventures and preferred equity, mezzanine finance rates, those kind of things, but don't necessarily need to be experts at them. Exactly, yep. So when should developers look to engage development funding specialists like yourself? So nearly all of our repeat borrowers uh, and recurring uh, kind of clients engage us pretty much on, on day one of a new project. As soon as they've got their headline numbers uh, in their FISO, they'll send it to me and ask my opinion um, uh, on, on the most effective way to fund the project. Um, they, they do this for a few reasons. Um, such as that you know, we're working on a multitude of projects um, across the sector uh, and across many sectors in terms of resi, industrial, retail, commercial, um, but particularly residential at the moment is, is pretty uh, um, uh, the flavour of the month. And so us being able to give them some quick feedback on you know, challenges that we uh, saw a developer encounter on the one down the street uh, will definitely have some help. But in terms of actually making a decision on... Uh, the project from a financing point of view, um, you might have a pretty FISO that shows a 20% return on cost um, and then you find out that you know it's got a, a weird staging or, or a weird cost item um, and you need to put in 5 mil cash instead of 3 mil cash. I mean, it would be good to know that during your diligence process so that you, know, you can decide if you, uh, if you love it or you dump it. Um, so we'll get uh, involved fairly early with our, our repeat clients and, and help map out a few options for them um, to how they're going to fund the project and, and also how, they, how quickly they're going to get the project going. Um, you know, you might take, be stepping up in, you know, you might have previously done a bunch of 30-unit projects and you step up to 60 units in one project. All of a sudden you've got to be sitting on the market to get your pre-sales for a bit longer. Um, it, it, instead of a 30-unit project that you can build in 10 months and the whole cycle takes you 13, 14, 15 months to turn your capital around, all of a sudden you're you know, sitting on the market for six months to get 30 pre-sales. Um, and you know, you, as I say, you might have a pretty FISO with a, a magical 20% ROC, but you know, it, 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 a lot of it depends on how quickly you can turn that project around, get it funded, get it started, get it finished, get it sold, get your profit and get on to the next one. So let's say that a developer understood how finance works and, and where to source it. 
why would they still engage somebody like yourself to help them? So the best explanation I've found for our value proposition uh, is to compare it to uh, another service a developer would be familiar with, um, which is a town planner. So any good developer will understand the constraints on a particular site, uh, the GFA allowable, setbacks, plot ratio, height, density and so on. All those parameters and metrics are available on the council website that you can read uh, and you can do all the math and comprehension to your heart's delight. Um, and that's great in theory. Uh, you can even go to council yourself and do the pre-lodgement. However, when it comes to practice, uh, most elite developers will actually pay an expert town planner to manage that process for them. So some of the reasons why they would do that is because that town planner is a specialist. Uh, they work on many projects uh, and they know what's acceptable and how you can push the rules and get flex in some of those um, kind of imaginary boundaries. Uh, another is that they make their living by getting good results. Um, so they're going to have great relationships and rapport um, with the right people and, uh, you know, long-standing relationships with, uh, and, and some of the, in the town planning sector, some of them or a lot of them are actually used to work within um, kind of the, the government side of the decision-making process themselves, uh, which is similar for our business. Um, we've got a, quite a few ex-bankers that work with us. So... These guys are dependent on the outcome. They'll also be able to talk the jargon and lingo with the other decision makers. And it's much the same with uh, a bank. You may have a relationship manager. He might take you to lunch once a year. Um, you think your mates and he, you think his sole purpose in life is to give you money and make sure that it's in, the terms are all in your favour. Um, the reality is he's selling a particular product. His boss wants him to uh, to push and and they've really only got, I guess, one product that they can they can kind of push to you. So just like the town planner, uh, we've drawn our knowledge from many different files um, and able to share those insights across the other files that we're working on at the time. Um, we've got a big range of lenders. I think last time I looked, we've got 85 lenders that um, provide construction finance across bank, uh, minor bank, uh, mortgage trusts and private high net wealth uh, individuals that we um, arrange loans through. Um, so we've got that relationship with the um, decision makers. Um, most of my team are ex-major bank operators. Um, some of them were national and state managers um, and key decision makers themselves. So you can imagine the strength of their relationships when we go in with a, um, uh, a new project to fund um, is that we're getting the, getting the full engagement from them um, and we're talking to them in the lingo that they want to hear. Uh, we're bringing them deals that they know are going to fit within their parameters because, you know, we, we understand what their parameters are. Um, and also, I guess, as a relationship group, um, this year we'll place over half a billion dollars in volume. Um, so the banks give us their full attention. Ah, so well, congratulations on those people that have made, managed to escape from the banks. Yeah. You guys sit around in circles once a once a week and have little therapy sessions and talk yes. through. <laughs> talk yeah. through how happy you are to be out. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's. It, I guess it's good for them because they, you know, a lot of them have their clients that they have worked with for sometimes decades, and um, now they're able to give them, I guess, a, a wider service in terms of providing them with different options. Um, and uh, yeah, the guys that work for me anyway are pretty excited to um, have that flexibility, which is great. Now, what kind of uh, funding planning should developers do? Uh, so my view is they should do lots of it and regularly. Um, uh, as I mentioned before, having a pre-planned business model uh, is is a critical element to being, having a, a business that grows um, sustainably and comfortably. Um, so, you know, on a basic level, working out how much profit you make per product. Um, so that might be 50k if you're doing a, a townhouse in a in a lower socioeconomic area, or it might be 250k profit if you're doing a a townhouse or a villa in, in Sydney. Um, so looking at the, the product that you've chosen to kind of specialise in and then working out how much profit per product you're going to make uh, by doing that project. Uh, and then looking at how much turnover you've got to actually do per year to make that profit. Um, so if you're doing investor product at, say, 500, 550K per product and the TDC of that is, say, 400 grand, so let's assume... Uh, 
you're a developer, you want to make $2 million per year profit and you're making 80 grand per product. So that's 25 product per year on your own, let alone staff costs. So let's uh, call it 30 product per year because you've got two or three staff and office costs. So now you're turning over 12 million in total turnover to get a 2 million profit. Um, but to turn over 12 mil of total development cost, um, if you work with a bank, so let's say they're at 75% loan to cost ratio, which most of them are as default setting at the moment, uh, that means you've got to have 3 mil cash to inject into those projects every year to keep that business humming. Um, so you're risking 3 mil to make 2.5 or 2 mil net of staff costs. So um, understanding that kind of metrics and, and model for a developer um, and I guess weighing it up in that risk-return balance and saying, you know, am I comfortable to risk 3 mil to make 2 mil um, and, and to, to continue to do that year in, year out? Uh, or, you know, am I subject to cyclical? Am I only going to make, you know, super profit once every seven years and, you know, the other six years I'm only going to make one mil profit? Am I happy risking three mil every year uh, and, and keep going back to the trough to, to keep it churning over? Is, is that the business model I want? So I think uh, doing planning is something that, um, you know, I think is, is critical and, and I think it's, um, you know, uh, something that should be done more. Um, I'd like to see more developers doing it in that kind of um, macro uh, fashion and, and, and taking on their business with that kind of approach. And so with that $3 million that you talk about, the developer having to inject each year, I presume that they would need to source that from somewhere. They probably wouldn't have just $3 mil year on year lying around ready to invest. Well, if, if you're a developer who wants to, um, you know, make $2 mil a year profit um, and turning over, you know, 30 to 40 product a year, that's that's the kind of capital that you'll need. Um, I, I guess also if you uh, were working with a, an awesome finance expert like us, uh, we'd probably reduce that three mil down and therefore your risk on return uh, is vastly improved. Um, as a case study, one of my very good clients currently does 600 product a year. Um, I first started working with them in 2009 uh, when they did their first 30 product project. Um, and, and so that growth was possible uh, by great capital planning um, and having a sustainable capital model that allowed them to get the best out of every dollar they had and to uh, recycle and repatriate that capital out of projects and, and, and keep their business model growing comfortably. And so is that a bit of a mindset shift for developers moving away from this idea that just getting cheap bank funding is the best way to go? I think it is, and I think it's becoming more the norm. Um, so to give you some industry stats, in, in the home loan brokerage market in 2002, 12% of home loans were written by an independent broker. So 88% were written by the lender themselves. Fast forward to 2015, and 58% of home loans were written by an independent broker. Uh, so that means you know only four out of ten are actually written by the lender themselves with their own staff. And when you think about uh, banks and their kind of uh, fight for profits um, over fantastic customer service, they're um, more and more open to the fact of dealing with uh, independents like us. Um, and as I said, you know most of us, uh, the guys in my team are ex-bankers, so they were sitting on that side of the table. In terms of commercial, it's grown very quickly. It was 6%. It's now 38% of commercial uh, mortgages in Australia are written by an independent firm like ours. So it's definitely becoming more accepted um, and particularly since, um, I guess, November 2015, some six months ago, uh, with the new APRA rulings affecting the bank's ability to lend, um, private capital is now, I guess, the new black um, and we're funding projects Anywhere 30, 40, even we're doing one for 120 million at the moment um, with private capital, which is um, you know a, a big shift. Um, so being open to those types of products is is definitely, um, I guess, has grown in my 10 years in the industry, and and it's now becoming uh, you know elite developers are aware that they need to engage consultants like us to get the best out of their capital. 
Yeah, and I guess that's, f- from a developer's point of view, really important when you're looking to get funding is to engage someone who is a specialist because I know a lot of mortgage brokers will claim that they can get you construction finance, but in reality, they probably don't know the ins and outs to get you the best deal. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting uh, interesting space. There's, um, I guess, a few people out there who are, like you say, stepping up trying to do it. Um, our whole business revolves around just construction finance, so um, if we weren't good at it, we wouldn't uh, put food on the table and, and we've, we've grown pretty well in the last couple of years and I think um, uh, doing $500 million this year is a great, um, a, a great milestone. And so does everyone get a Holden Capital high-vis vest and a hard hat when they start with you? <laughs> yes, mate. We do have the, uh, the badged hard hats. Um, <laughs> we're, uh, we, we are out on site a fair bit. Um, we've got a, um, a small, uh, I guess, fund of private investors that we manage uh, their, their money and invest that as um, mezzanine debt or preferred equity joint ventures. Um, we've currently got about I think, 70 or 75 mil invested on behalf of our investor base um, and, and with those uh, loans that we do, uh, we're definitely, I guess, a little bit more hands-on and, and, and out on site quite regularly. Yeah, I was actually talking to someone yesterday just about the opportunities for smart investors or sophisticated investors to get in to fund development projects because there are good returns for them. Mm, definitely. So um, our, I guess, uh, average return we provide, uh, so we do first mortgages on development sites, might only be six months, uh, but that's something the banks are really not uh, kind of that keen to do because uh, the only exit for them is construction, um, which they're currently not doing a lot of. So uh, we do a fair bit of that and um, that can range anywhere from kind of 12 to 14% per annum. Uh, obviously, mezzanine debt uh, as, a, as a vanilla mezzanine debt piece would be uh, in the mid-teens to late, you know, late teens, even 20% per annum for the investor. Um, and some of the pref equity deals we've done, uh, we've uh, provided returns anywhere from 35 to 50% per annum, um, and that's as a passive investment. Um, we, we probably only do half a dozen of those a year because you've got to pick your... Uh, pick your sponsor pretty carefully but um yeah we're doing doing quite a few of those and 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 that's that's the fun stuff yeah well particularly with the growing pool of superannuation funds that are available in australia those sophisticated investors will know how to make that money work for them absolutely all right so what problems do you often see developers getting themselves into and how can they avoid them (laughs) um how long have we got to talk about this one? <laughs> I could uh, I could go on for hours. Um, uh, yeah, look, there's 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 hundreds of what not to do stories. Um, we see a few spectacular fails from time to time. Um, back to your previous question, when is too soon to talk with a finance specialist? Uh, well, it's it's probably the converse here, which is when is too late, uh, and that's the week of settlement that you need to settle a site. Um, or what we've seen a lot of lately, unfortunately, is I've dug a hole and I need your help. Um, it's, uh, I guess, a, a sign of the times when the banks are, are shifting goalposts at the last minute. Um, we've had to do quite a few kind of rescue missions in the last uh, six months. Um, we've had a lot of calls from builders saying, I need your help. These, these guys keep telling me their funding's organised and, um, you know, they owe me a couple of million bucks and I'm, I'm sick of working. Uh, so please get involved and get it solved. So um, uh, definitely leaving it too late is uh, one of the biggest challenges. Uh, one of the biggest, I guess, and most prominent killer for success in the last kind of 10 years that I've been in funding is indecision. Uh, sitting on a decision and, and hoping the, uh, the answer will smack you in the face is um, probably uh, yeah, a fantastic failure in my view particularly post-GFC with people not executing quick enough and then the market just kind of took off pretty pretty rapidly and people are uh, kind of missed the boat. Uh, another, I'd say, is a, a lack of broad skills uh, to tackle obstacles that arise. So um, quite a lot of developers actually come from within the property industry where they've learnt um, kind of a, a trade or earned their stripes in a particular discipline. Um, but that doesn't mean that you've got the, the wider skill set to actually do a property development. Um, there's a, you know, a, a long list of risks that you've got to manage um, and you can't be an expert in every area. Um, so as I say, the, um, 
using consultants is a is a is a is a good one. Um, as the great Peter Drucker said, the definition of an entrepreneur is to leverage resources. The main resource for a developer is time, money, and skill. So if you leverage your time, you might put on a staff member or two um, to do certain tasks and help you be more efficient. You leverage your capital, you borrow from the bank um, or, or a, uh, a lender or, or use somebody like us, a specialist consultant, um, and that, that helps you, I guess, overall build a bigger, better, faster business model that will um, give you access to skill sets and overcome obstacles uh, quickly and smoothly um, and, and I guess importantly to see you grow uh, in, a, in a comfortable, you know, lower stress fashion. When you talk about problem solving, what are the kind of things that you see people being unable to solve due to their background, say, being a trade uh, I think a lot of it is, um, well, I think a common one is uh, probably back to the indecision. But, you know, they'll sit on something, uh, an issue will arise, and they'll sit on it for three weeks instead of, you know, calling five people in the next you know, half an hour and making a decision in three hours. And, and that delayed decision will actually end up costing them sometimes more than the first issue that arose because they weren't able to answer it quickly. Um, so I think just you know, having the, I guess, whether it's a, a mentor relationship or it's a consultant that you work with regularly that you can call and go, hey, look, I've got this issue. How do I overcome it? Um, and it might not even be that they're a particularly expert in that issue, but they work on a multitude of projects that they might have seen that problem come up before. And they go, you know, they'll, they'll call up and go, hey, Dan, I've got this problem. What do you think? And I go, well, mate, I'm not an expert, but this did happen uh, four weeks ago on a project that we were funding that was two blocks away. And he overcome it by doing this. Oh, okay, great. He's made a decision rather than sitting up for three weeks, chewing up holding costs um, and um, costing him profit. So you've already touched on it a little bit that it seems to be getting a little bit tighter out there. What do you see the horizon look like for the lending sort of funding landscape and what impact will it have? So the horizon, in my view, as at May 2006, is that it's uh, very cloudy for developers. The chance of rain is 100% and the chance of storms is very likely. Um, if your business model relies on funding at 4% per annum, uh, then I hope you've got a nice beach house somewhere because you'll be sitting on the beach for a long time to come. Uh, it's, it's very much a case of either adjusting your business model to the current market and get on with life like many elite developers are doing um, or go and work on your golf game and um, be uh, the happiest pessimist in the sand. Um, talking to uh, some of my mates within the banks, they're pretty much on a dollar-in, dollar-out basis, um, which means they've They've got a zero growth projection in their book and they can only lend money once it actually comes back in. Uh, so we are still getting deals done with the banks. Uh, however, it's it's a longer process. It's a longer period of time till you've actually got certainty. Um, you know, banks will issue an indicative term sheet in half an hour, but to actually get it credit approved is taking you know, weeks on end. Um, they've got a, a extra layers of credit process they've got to go through um, and then you've got the actual fight quality in terms of you know, justifying why your project is better than the one sitting next to it uh, on a merit basis. Um, so we're seeing a lot of developers having to, I guess, adjust to the new market and, and incorporate it into their cost of business and, um, and be aware that, I guess, um, it is getting harder and um, you know, creating competitive tension in the funding market between the banks uh, is very hard when, when you know, three out of five of them don't want to play at all. So since November uh, 2015, the last six months, um, private capital has become the new black. Um, we've been funding projects, uh, I guess, anywhere from five to 20 mil um, a couple of months. We're doing of those at the moment. Um, we've just... Uh, got um, about to settle one for, for 33 mil and we're uh, about three weeks away from selling one for 45 mil and we've just been engaged on one for 120 mil. Uh, all of that is high net worth uh, investors providing that capital. So a year ago you just, you just wouldn't have seen that and now that private capital is um, becoming a very easy alternative to accept and get on with it. And so with that you just factor in the higher costs of 
capital as a developer, is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's like construction prices have gone up, the cost of land's gone up, um, and uh, yeah, the, the cost of funding has gone up. Um, and if you want to, if you're doing a, let's keep it a round number, $10 million project and you're happy putting in two and a half mil to every project that you do and borrow the rest from the bank at, you know, 5% per annum, well, that's great. That's your chosen business model. Uh, however, um, you know, quite often property developers, they're entrepreneurs, they want to find other ways of mm-hmm. doing it quicker, faster, better. Uh, they want to grow their, their, their business. Um, and so they'll look for alternatives. They'll engage a a firm like us to uh, help with their, their business model and their growth, and and we may restructure that project where they're only putting in, you know, eight hundred grand to a ten million dollar project, and all of a sudden their capital now stretches further. That they, they can take on more, they can slot them in in a timely manner so that they're managing their risk and exposure to the market, um, and that that's letting them grow. But back to your comment about the cost going up, um, what we've also uh, seen happen is. Um, Let's say it's a 10 million TDC project. The bank provides seven and a half mil at five percent per annum, um, and let's say we provided a one and a half mil mes piece at 20 percent per annum. So you've put in a mil, uh, and we've got nine mil of external capital. When you combine the, uh, I guess the weighted average cost of capital for that nine mil, blending the five percent and the 20 percent per annum, it'll actually work out at about 10 percent per annum, 11 percent per annum over a 15 month project. So what we're doing now and what we've seen a massive shift towards is what we call stretch senior uh, debt, which is really combining that first tranche and second tranche together. So we'll now provide the whole nine mil at 11% per annum. Um, and so that has, and that's private money. Um, it's, it's money that we manage um, or facilitate, um, but it, it's, it's not from a bank. It's, it's from a private source. And they come in, replace the bank entirely, uh, they have a first mortgage, they've got step-in rights, a tripartite with the builder. They conduct themselves exactly like a bank. Um, as I said, a lot of our guys are ex-bank. Uh, they understand the process. They follow exactly the same process. Everything else is exactly the same, just instead of having a Westpac or an ANZ logo on it, it's got a Holden Capital logo on it, and everything else happens exactly as you would, you would see it. The mortgage documentation is the same. Everything's the same. It's just providing that combined... Uh, two tranches of capital into a single tranche. Um, and yes, the cost looks expensive initially, uh, but what we generally do with uh, people when they come and start uh, presenting a project to us is that we'll actually map out and model up their project for them to show that uh, doing a two-piece uh, debt solution, seven and a half and one and a half mil, versus combining it and doing the whole nine mil as a single piece, and we'll show them the cost benefit. And in some cases, um, the cost benefit may be on, on, on a $10 million project, but there may be actual an additional cost. Let's say it's hundred grand, because uh, it wouldn't be that much um, on, on a project of that size. Obviously, it's a little bit more on the $120 million project, um, but there's other benefits that come with that. For example, um, we're doing one at the moment, uh, which is 28 mil. Uh, he was talking to the bank, very progressed, had terms, and he wants to be an owner-builder. And the bank's just said, you know, we can't do 75% loan to cost on that. Um, and then, you know, he wants to bring in a, uh, a mezzanine debt piece. Uh, and so the bank's just gone, no, we're actually totally cancelling the offer. Um, so we're now providing, uh, in that case, 85% loan to cost ratio at 11% per annum. It means that he can actually build the job himself rather than bring on an external contractor. Uh, and having to take on the risk of somebody else building his own project. So for him, that was a solution. Um, on another project we're doing, they actually have a, uh, a fairly large chunk of foreign sales, which the bank uh, will only accept two out of every 10 contracts presented as a foreign buyer, and maybe even less since the, uh, the banks have tightened their lending to overseas buyers. So in this uh, private um, stretch senior pieces that we're doing, we've got a higher tolerance to overseas sales. So in that case, it meant that this guy, uh, developer, didn't have to go and crash a bunch of contracts and go and you know, resell them, do the whole exercise again to uh, Australian buyers. So uh, in that case, the extra cost of, of capital for him was well worth it because he can now push on and start construction probably in, in June as opposed to waiting until Christmas. 
Um, so often there's a, a, a the, the higher cost of capital generally comes with some leniencies. Those leniencies might be your own builder, might be foreign sales, and might be lower pre-sales. You might say, "Hey guys, I really want to hit the market uh, sooner with this product, so that I can um, uh, take advantage of the market, and I don't want to wait around for another uh, four months to get the sales and another two months for them to go unconditional. Um, I want to get started now." Uh, and so we've uh, still got funding options available with with no pre-sales, um, but. The benefit has to outweigh the cost, or people wouldn't take it. And, and we're currently doing, um, you know, I guess as a, as a group, we're currently settling um, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in private capital because it, at the, it has a benefit and a place at the moment. Yeah, it, re- it really boils down to time to completion, isn't it? And speeding that up. Absolutely. And and going back to the business model of saying, what is my business model? How how. You know, am I happy to sit on this development site for the next four years until I can borrow money again at five percent per annum? You know, as I was saying, if that's your business model, you're going to be uh, you're going to have a lot of spare time on your hands for the next couple of years. Yeah, well, I was always of the view that the difference between say five percent and ten percent shouldn't be make or break for a project. You're cutting exactly. It, you're yeah. cutting it pretty fine if that's what you're working on. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. Okay, so what's the best thing that developers can do then to consistently secure funding for their projects? Uh, so firstly, have a business model that doesn't rely on construction at 4% per annum. Um, secondly, uh, probably say remember that cost is one ingredient to the recipe in terms of funding um, and, and being flexible. Um, and thirdly, is in, engage an expert. Um, uh, I think that's that's critical to actually, if you're wanting to grow a business uh, and and actually, you know, that's your career and, and you're committed and, and you're um, wanting to do it for the next 10, 20 years, you, you want to have a, a nice sustainable business model that you're not freaking out every time you've got to settle a new development project at the last minute going, how do I do this, what do I do? Um, and and being rushed and panicked means sometimes you might make a wrong decision. Whereas if you've got a pre-planned strategy um, that has a sustainable capital model, you've got comfort, you're not in a rush, uh, and, and you don't end up getting uh, getting desperate. It means that you're in the box seat to make the good decisions. So I think it's critical. Yeah, and look, a lot of big businesses like to keep cash on hand for say a year's worth of cash flow, so that they don't suffer from that volatility and they can make decisions with a clear mind because they're not under pressure. It's yep. the same really for developers. Yep. I've got one uh, developer client who always keeps five or six mil cash spare so that you know when that contract falls over that another developer couldn't settle, that he can go in there and buy it you know, uh, with, with cash and a 30-day contract. Um, and he finds that buying sites like that is, is his best... Um, kind of angle rather than trying to tie them up on a one or two year option and, and increase the, the value before he buys it. He's got a got a checkbook and he sits there and he buys them uh, and he's always got capital spare to do that and he finds that, you know, he only does one or two big projects a year but he finds that that's the best solution to, to separating him and he, that's his competitive edge to get the, you know, good projects close to amenity uh, in in kind of you know desirable locations is having that checkbook and being able to write a check in fourteen or twenty eight days and and separate himself from the other guys lining up to buy it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure we'd all like to have five or six mil lying around that we could uh, write checks for to f- buy development sites like that. Yes, well, it's 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 about differentiating yourself as a developer. There's um, you know quite a few of them out there trying to make their their living and, and career and retirement out of property development, it's understanding your business model and understanding what you're going to do that's different to the next guy that's going to help you acquire sites sustainably, turn your capital over sustainably and deliver a good product. All right. Well, is there? you've already given us lots of things that developers can do. What about one tip you have for developers? Uh, I've, I've said it 48 times already, but having a business model, uh, knowing it, living it, breathing it, um, too many people I think are reactionary to the market and reacting to what they read in the Fin Review uh, and, and making decisions off the hip. Um, the smarter elite developers that I know don't react um, flippantly to things. Um, they're proactive, not reactive. Uh, they've got a plan and they execute it. Awesome. Well, I guess I should use this opportunity to ask you for a little market update and whether you're foreseeing there's going to be issues, 
particularly around foreign buyers settling on apartment stock? Um, I think from talking to some of the developers that, that we've funded and that we work with, um, I don't ha- haven't seen too many of them that are worried yet. Um, I think there's uh, a, a fairly large number of overseas buyers in some projects, but there are a number of projects that uh, have local buyers can get money from banks. Um, and so I think there are some concentrated risk with some certain projects uh, and those developers are going to have to be on the front foot to find solutions for it. Um, I also think that it's it's probably a little bit kind of dramatised because it's the, uh, the topic of the week. Um, there's already been talk amongst uh, a few lenders how they can come in with a solution to the problem. Um, we're talking to a few people. Um, I must admit, initially, I didn't really think it was, I guess, a problem that would affect our business and, and didn't really give it too much kind of headspace. Um, and then I realised after, after a couple of days that all of this money that we've lent out to these developers, um, if they you know, do have settlement risk and we can't get that money back, well, then I can't, I can't sell that money again. And, and turn it over myself. You know, there's a there's a finite pool of private capital in Australia, um, and uh, its its ability to turn over is is critical to keep other projects, and give them the ability to get funded as well. So, um, uh, so yeah, we've been working with all of the current exposures that we've got uh, to make sure that, well, first of all, to find out what exposure they've got to foreign buyers, um, and I've been surprised it's been been very low. Um, and then the ones who do, uh, we've been kind of, you know, brainstorming ideas about how they can um, get get funding for those buyers, and, and they've also been in turn, you know, getting in touch with those buyers to find out what exposure they've got and what what debt they need. Can they get it? Um, can they get it, or can they get cash into Australia in preparation for their settlement in you know three, six, nine months' time? people are interested in talking to you about the projects, where can they find out more about you? Yeah, so as you mentioned before, our, our website, we've uh, furnished with quite a few content pieces, um, uh, just trying to, I guess, share a, a bit of knowledge and, and help people understand the process and, and the way that things work behind the scenes, the mechanics. Uh, and we've also been doing a, a video series for the last couple of months, um, again, just trying to talk to people and and help them uh, understand uh, what we do. Um, so, yeah, touching base with us via that, uh, signing up to get our, our updates as we provide a quarterly update and we provide uh, intermittent kind of market industry news as it comes to, to hand. Um, and by all means, if they've got an inquiry, uh, touch base on our on our webpage. There's, uh, I think, seven um, guys that are, are client-facing and and uh, all their contact details are there, mobile, email. Uh, so feel free to shoot them a scenario and say, hey, look, this is my project and, and I'd love to get some uh, some ideas on how we can make it work better. Well, Dan, we might leave it there. I know you've got deals to go and assess and de- property developers to help out. So thank you very much for bringing on the Property Developer Podcast. No worries, mate. Thanks for the opportunity. See Talk you soon. later. Bye. Well, what about that, hey? Was that a great conversation about developing or what? I could have chatted with Dan all day about finance and developing. There was so much gold in that discussion. I hope you were taking notes about the cash flow management tips Dan suggested because there's money to be saved and made right there. Funding is such an integral part of developing and I find it is a bit of a dark art at times with a bunch of terms and concepts that can boggle the mind. And for me, that's why I seek help from people who understand more deeply about how to make it work for me. I almost don't know where to start with the lessons I took out of that discussion But here's my three biggest ones. One, understand your business model and use it to plan out your funding needs. You may need to look beyond loans from major banks to fund your future projects. The funds may be a blend of bank money, private capital, mezzanine finance, preferred equity or stretch senior debt. And you might find that accessing alternative funding may in fact accelerate your ability to complete projects. Having an open mind to paying a higher cost for capital may in fact improve your pipeline of projects and still maintain a good profit margin. Two, leverage your key resources. Dan talked about maximising your resources of time, money and skills so that you get better results. Maybe you need to hire someone to delegate tasks to to free up time or leverage options to stretch your capital like an equity redraw 
or engage professionals to manage a project or provide advice. So find those ways of freeing your capacity so you can focus on the overall direction of the business and to do the things you are best at and ultimately get to where you want to be faster. Three, treat funding as a risk item. I think Dan's suggestion of viewing funding as a risk item is a very good point. If you are regularly assessing and monitoring it, you can stay on top of any issues before they get out of hand, or in fact make better use of funding options and your own cash. I'm sure if you were assessing and reviewing your funding risks on a monthly or quarterly basis, you would inevitably become more familiar with your needs, exposure and options. And from that, work out some strategic options for how you use capital. During the conversation, Dan also mentioned the construction funding dictionary that they've put together. I've read through it and I think it's really useful. So I'll put a link to that on the page for this episode. Otherwise, head over to the Holden Capital website, which is holdencapital.com.au and under the news tab is a range of useful articles and resources. So go and check those out. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, head over to iTunes and leave us a review or drop by the Property Developer Podcast website and share a comment. Don't forget to connect with me on Instagram via Property Developer Podcast, where I share lots of photos of development sites and projects that I come across. So until next time, may all your funding applications be successful. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.